And we're, we're going to be looking at a church. Um, we're going to start looking at a church. And I just want to, I want to lay down some framework uh, for what we're dealing with if you haven't been around the last couple of weeks. Um, the book of Revelation, of the Revelation, is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It tells the breaking forth, the, the, the uh, coming to visibility, the manifestation of Jesus Christ on earth through the church. And through the whole book there is a tension um, between what Jesus is doing and what the world is. And there are a lot of different metaphors that are used for that. We're going to run into a whole bunch of them. Um, the most prevalent one toward the end of the book is that the, um, the vision describes the church, what Jesus is doing, this thing that is breaking forth, as the new Jerusalem. And that new Jerusalem rises up in the midst of the falling Babylon. Um, and they use all these metaphors, these two different worldviews. And so there's always going to be a balance. Revelation has a lot of balancing between two things. Numbers are important in the book. The number two, the number three, the number seven. We're not getting into the, most of the book, but there's, there's a lot that ties into there. And it is a book written to people, written to the church, that is really struggling with its identity. What are we in the midst of this world? We're not Jewish, we're not Roman, we're not Greek, um, we're, we're, we're not Hebrew, uh, we're not Asian, we're not, we, don't, we're, we don't really fit in. We don't worship these gods, we don't worship that god. We, we, there's, where, what do we, who are we, what do we do, what is our purpose in life? And the letter is written to seven churches that are all in western uh, Turkey today on the Aegean coast. Um, they're all, it's like, form about a circle. It would take a few days to walk through the circle. It's kind of a circuit of churches. Um, and the main church is the church of Ephesus. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. Some of them are ugly. Um, there, there, there's some good and bad in, in most of the churches. There are a couple that are just all bad and a couple that are just all good. But really, this is an encouragement for us as a church. Living in a world of tensions. Living in a world of stresses. And the actual letters to the churches, which begin in chapter 2 and verse 1, um, express some ideas. In chapter 1 and verse 17, uh, Jesus, who is giving this revelation, who is giving this thing, this idea, he says, do not be afraid. So this is not a book for fear. Most people that teach the book of Revelation, they teach fear, they teach Oh, be frightened. Oh, be scared. Oh, do this. Oh, look what's coming. This is the end of the world. And yet, Jesus says to John, who receives this revelation, he says, don't be afraid. And then in verse 19, he says, write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. There are two ways to understand that, whether it's sequential, as in um, what is happening now, and then what will happen later, or, and this is my personal view on it, that what is happening now is going to happen again. That this is, this is a very real world that we are living in right now. That this is not talking about some future age, but rather it deals with the stresses and tensions and struggles that are going on right now. And they will intensify and they will build as Jesus is being revealed in the world until ultimately we will reach a point where the revelation of Jesus Christ is complete, but in the meantime, what we're going through, others have gone through before us, and they will go through after us. Okay? So let's take a look at chapter 2 and verse 1. <coughs> and as we do that, let's, let's begin with a word of prayer. 
Father, once again, we look to your word. And Father, we look at um, probably one of the most complex books of the Bible. Um, Complex because we don't understand a lot uh, of what would have been easily comprehensible to the people that it was written to. And Lord, we look at a book that has often been twisted and broken um, by people with agendas. And Lord, we want to see what your Spirit has for us to see. We want to hear what your Spirit has for us to hear. Uh, Open our eyes and open our hearts and open our hands to do what you have called us to do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, first letter is to the church of Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, chapter 2 and verse 1. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. If you remember from last week, this image is not a static image. You know, Jesus, seven stars, seven candlesticks, but rather a storm, a maelstrom of movement. The stars and the lampstands and things are moving around him. And and all the visions of the revelation happen. And John is constantly turning around trying trying to track where Jesus is in these revelations. So these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his seven hands, in his right hand, and walks among the seven golden lampstands. And this is what he says. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. So... I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. So the first words that Jesus says to this church are an encouragement. I know you. I know you. And we should be encouraged by that just at the beginning, that Jesus knows us. You know, one of the things that people often tell me about praying in public is, I don't know how to pray, I don't know what to say, I'm afraid I'll say the wrong thing. And, and this is a great passage to go to, because guess what? Jesus knows you. He knows what's in your heart. He knows what's going on in your mind. So why not just tell Him that? You know, people say to me, oh, I, I got so angry, and I just wanted to say to God, why, why? But I couldn't say that. Really? It's not going to catch him by surprise. You know, he's not going to be shocked. He's like, I never knew. If you had only told me earlier, I could have done something. He knows what goes on in our hearts and our minds. He knows what's happening in in our hearts. And he says to the church of Ephesus, I know your deeds. I know your works. I, I know how hard you work. I know your perseverance. He says, I know who you are. I I know what drives you. And I know to this church, he says, I know that you resist, you fight those who are wicked. He says, those who come in and who are, um, he says, uh, says, you have tested those who claim to be apostles. He says, I know that you try the spirits, that you are more than willing to say, all right, that's interesting. Let's test that against scripture. Let's see what the Bible says. Let's see what the apostle Paul says. Let's see what the apostle Peter says. They say, we know, he says, I know that about you that's a good thing that i know about you i know that you're not willing to let other people tell you what jesus said but rather you want to go and find out what the scriptures say he says i know that i know that you work hard at that and that's an encouragement he encourages us and says i know that you are doing your best you are you are persevering in a difficult situation well what was the situation like for the church in ephesus 
Um, Ephesus was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Uh, the urban population was about 200,000, although that would have been um, essentially citizens. It wouldn't have been servants and farmers that lived on the outskirts. So the, the city may have been as much as, there may have been in the metro area, more or less, there may have been as many as half a million people. It was a coastal city. It was a trade city. There was a lot of, of shipping that went on. And I, I mentioned a few weeks ago that the, the city of Ephesus, um, well, it was at the mouth of a river, and the river kept silting up, and they had to keep moving the city forward. Now the city, it's called Seljuk in, in Turkey, it's actually about 20 miles inland from the ocean. That's how much the, the, mountain has, or the, the river has filled in. But at the time, it was a major trade city. Um, it had an amphitheater in it that seated about 25,000 people. And that was for plays and things. So you, you had plays with 25,000 people watching you uh, perform these plays. It was a, it was a very cultured city. Um, but it was also a, a city very, very steeped in false religion. Um, we have found with what they call the... Uh, well, we. It's not like I was on the dig. Um, but uh, they, they have these things called the Ephesa Grammata, uh, which are their nonsense... They're not words in Greek, but they were used in their religious observances. So it was a lot like the ohms that the, the Buddhists use. Is it the Buddhists that use ohm? Um, you know, the ohm, you know, lotus position. Got to have long legs to pull it off. You know, Gandhi garb. Um, you know, that, that it was a lot like that. And they would, they would repeat these words. And the whole idea was to get into kind of a, a hypnotic state. Um, and the reason that you did that was that they worshipped these two goddesses in Ephesus. One's name was Artemis. Um, in the Old King James Bible, it's a, you, you read in the book of Acts about the Temple of Diana. And that's, that's the worship of Artemis. And, and Artemis was, was um, an ancient goddess. We, we don't know where she came from. And, and she, her temple had been around since about 1000 uh, BC and it had been rebuilt several times. And there was a lot of worship uh, of that goddess and... And, and the reason we don't know a whole ton about her is that there was another goddess called Cabela. We, we, we call her Sybil today. But, but um, this other goddess was even older, but she was more of like a, a fertility goddess. And they worshipped her um, the best way. Worship in her temple would have been an HBO film, okay? Um, that, that's the best way to describe it. If you don't have HBO like I do... I don't, sorry, I don't have HBO. I'm going to verify that one. Um, HBO is known for its kind of raunchy filming. That, uh, that's, what, uh, that's what the worship of Kibble was like. Uh, there was a lot of, there was temple prostitution, there was uh, fertility parties. Um, it, was like, it was like a state-sanctioned frat party. So if you don't know what HBO is, I assume you know what a frat party is. Um, and that's what it was. Drunkenness and, and sex, it was just, a, it, was, it was awful. And the Romans, who loved that kind of stuff, um, when the Romans came into Asia Minor, they kind of took the worship of Artemis and the worship of Kibble, and they went, you know what? Is it Kibble's in bits and bits? No, um, they, they took them and they, sorry, that's... It's a warped mind. Um, they took those two and they, they pushed them together and formed one religion out of them. Right? They pushed them together. And that was one form of worship that went on in Ephesus, but there was another form of worship. There were only two cities in Asia that were allowed, permitted to uh, practice the worship of Divius Imperator, 
um, which is the worship of the divine emperor. Uh, Ephesus and Sardis were the only cities that had temples um, to the divine emperor. That the ruler of the Roman Empire was worshipped as a god, enthroned as a god. Um, and in the Eastern Empire, this is very prevalent. In the Western Empire, they just treated him like another guy. He was just another man. But in the East, they worshipped him as a god. And in Ephesus, there were temples. So there were basically temples, um, for lack of a better word, temples to sex and temples to power. And that was what happened in Ephesus. That was what went on in the city. In fact, when the Apostle Paul ministered in the city of Ephesus, there was so much witchcraft that they, they held a bonfire to burn all their spells. And the, uh, much of the economy of the city was driven by the making of silver shrines to the goddess Artemis. And there's a thriving Christian culture inside of Ephesus that John writes to, that Jesus speaks to through John and says, I know your works. I know your deeds. I know your perseverance. I know your fight to stay pure. I know that. That's good. That's strong. That's great. Then read verse 3. He says, You have persevered, have endured hardship for my name, and have not grown weary. You are tireless in your work to stay clean in the midst of this mess. And God thanks Him. Jesus praises them for that. Then read verse 4. But. Now my translation says yet. Um, uh, It's really but. But. I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Whoa. I know your hard work. I know your deeds. I know your perseverance. I know that you're testing these teachers to make sure that they're not false apostles. I know what you're doing. And it's good and it's great. But, in the midst of all of that, You've forsaken your first love. The word forsaken elsewhere in the New Testament is translated as divorce. Um, It's not translated that way here because the context doesn't really uh, lean on it, but it is the idea of being divorced from your first love. And the word first, there are two Greek words for first. One is numerical, you know, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, you know, one, two, three, four. And the other one is priority. This is the word that we get the word proton from, um, the basic building block of the the atom. The prota is is the core, the the basic thing, the foundational thing. And he says, you've divorced yourself from the foundational love. In your pursuit for purity... Ephesus, in your pursuit for making sure that you were correct, you have divorced yourself from a foundational idea, a foundational love, a core concept, and you've fallen. He says, remember the height you have fallen from. And see, we see a church trying to live in this world, and they are doing a balancing act. And the best illustration of that is before playgrounds suddenly got safe. How many of you remember trying to stand on a teeter-totter? How many of you have ever tried to do that or had your kids do it? 
You know, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, this was, a, this was kind of a rite of initiation for us. One of them, the first one involved a piece of playground of equipment that no longer exists, the merry-go-round. And you all remember what the merry-go-round was for, right? It was to get the smallest of you into it and then spin it until he puked. That was, that was what the purpose of the merry-go-round. I mean, the merry-go-round was awesome. You'd get an army of guys around the outside of the merry-go-round, get all the girls inside. No, no, we'll push it easy. Don't worry, it'll be fine. And, and then you would take off until you started getting dragged behind it and trampled by the other guys. You know, you know how it was? And that, that, that thing would be going Mach 3. It'd be flying around. Kids hurling, people flying off, hitting swings. It was great. They banned it. See, that's why our kids have to play video games. There's no, nothing fun to do at the playground anymore. Um, so, uh, no, no, honey, don't swing too high. I mean, when I was a kid, my dad's like, take it over, take it over, all the way. And, you know, I have two sisters, and the third one we don't talk about. No, uh, but the, we, you know, when you're on the playground, that was the thing, the teeter-totter, right? You'd get in between. Now, if you were really, really cunning, you would get one of your friends on either end and try to balance them out. But most people just did it with an empty teeter-totter. And you would get on either side of that fulcrum, all right, that central piece, all right, because the teeter-totter is a lever. You know, if you failed physics, you may not know that, little Newtonian physics there. But you would get between the, and you would try to balance that thing, right? And those of you who did it, did it, once you got the balance, could you just stand there? No, you, you had to constantly be kind of tweaking to one side or another, and then, then maybe your little sister would sneak up while you weren't looking and slam the, the seat of the other one and try to get you to fall off. You know, you were, you were always trying to fight. Well, this is, this is the image that he evokes here. He says, uh, you see, on one side of the teeter-totter, on one side of the seesaw, is, is doctrinal purity and, and the proper beliefs. Is this one side of the teeter-totter. And the church of Ephesus has been really, really trying to focus and keep in that side. You know, we've got to make sure nothing falls off of that side. We've got to keep that side on, the, on control. But on the other side of the teeter-totter is this first love. And they've, they've forgotten it. They've forgotten about what's going on that side of the teeter-totter. They've just pretended like it's not there. All they're worried about is this side. Just keeping this side. Just keeping the balance and keeping that side. We've got all of our focus on that side. I mean, I mean, maybe it's, you know, you're balancing, you've got a pretty girl and an ugly girl, and you're, you're focused on the pretty girl. You're trying to keep that balance there. And they said, you know, this doctrinal purity thing is so important to us. We're going to keep all of our focus on that. And we're going to make sure that we don't get any false apostles into the church. We're going to make sure that there aren't any, any troublemakers or false doctrine in the church. We're going to make sure that we have only the right books of the Bible in our, in our thing. And those are all good things. I'm not saying those things are bad things. Those are great things. But they were so focused on that. That their first love, the, 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 mo- the other side of the teeter-totter, had fallen off. And they didn't realize it. They didn't realize that now they were trying to, they were kind of balancing this without this was completely gone. That other thing had been lost. Well, what was that other thing? He, he says, you've, you've divorced yourself from your first love. Well, if you read John's uh, gospel and you read his epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, you will discover that what John means by love is the behavior of Christ. Um, John is the one who records that Jesus said, no greater love has any man than he lay down his life for his friends. John is the one who records Jesus saying that I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. 
John is the one who records, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. John is the one who records, this is how others will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. It's John who says that. John records those moments, the guy who writes this book. Because to John, the very foundational love of the world, of the church, was the behavior of Jesus. Jesus loved. And John says this is the basic love. This is the primary foundational thing that defines us, and that is the way that Jesus loved us. Not loving Jesus, and this is important, there are lots of people that walk around saying, oh, I love Jesus, Jesus is fantastic, man. I mean, he's cool, he's got a great beard, white robe, dishy thing in his head, healing people, it's great. I love Jesus, I wear sandals because I love Jesus. I mean, you say, you go, I've never heard something like that. Well, you've never been to a liberal college. I assure you that there are people out there, hey, man, Jesus is fantastic, he's great. I mean, I love Jesus, he's like, like you know, like Buddha, in a, Buddha with a beard, man. I mean, uh, drinking wine and stuff, that's Jesus. No, not love Jesus, the love of Jesus. The way that Jesus loved. Because the reason that Jesus lived, and John's John's, uh, vocabulary, the way that he records his gospel, is to teach us that Jesus loves. I mean, that's his purpose. John is the one who says, God is love. He says it in, in his first epistle. Um, he defines everything by that love. And, and he, says, he says to them, look, there was a first love, there was a thing that transformed you, made you the church of Jesus Christ in, in Ephesus. There was this amazing thing, and it was the behavior of Jesus. Because Jesus' love was never verbal. There are very few times in the Gospels that Jesus tells somebody, I love you. In fact, one of the most poignant times is with the Apostle Peter. And John actually hears that conversation and sticks it in at the tail end of the Gospel of John. But most of the time, Jesus demonstrated love by doing things. He records in uh, John chapter 11, we read that Jesus loved his friend Lazarus. Because he loved him, he raised him from the dead. That, man w- that all man would see the glory of God. Whenever you see and Jesus loved him, watch out because something extraordinary is about to happen. Jesus' love was action. It was doing. In fact, you actually read that. He says, repent in verse, uh, verse 5. He says, repent, do the things you did at first. If you do not repent... Uh, sorry, where am I? Uh, I lost it. Yeah, remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. He says love is an action, it's, it's a doing thing. And what had happened to the church in Ephesus, balancing this thing, whole thing out, is they become so focused on right doctrine, right beliefs, what we would call orthodoxy, which is not wrong. It's not bad. It's not wrong to be right. right? Some people say, don't worry about doctrine. No, 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 no. Worry about doctrine. All right? Worry about doctrine. But, but don't make it more important than love. You've got to balance the two. Because here's what happens. When you slide this way, and this is my tendency, my tendency is to slide toward doctrine. I have a degree in theology, um, and the ongoing joke is only people who want to be right all the time get degrees in theology. Um, So 
you know, I have a tendency to slide this way to write doctrine. I want to be correct. I want to know the proper context of the passage. I want to explore the history and the ideas and all of this stuff. That's my thing. I want to be right. You know, and, and I have a tendency to slide that way. But when you slide too far to this side, you get what we call dead orthodoxy, academic Christianity, that the only thing they care about is being correct. The only thing they care about is information. I've been in church services where I swear the pastor was unaware that there were people in the crowd because all he was doing was talking about all these theological ideas that he had discerned. You know, let's, uh, let's understand the eschatological implications of the Abraham and Covenant in this context, hermetogrammatically. And you're sitting there going, uh, coffee? All right. So there's a danger there. Now on the other side, there's a danger to sliding to a morality. Now notice I did not say behavior, I said morality. There's a, there's a tendency to slide all this way to only doing good things with no doctrine. Let's, uh, we're only gonna, let's, just do, let's not worry about doctrine, let's just do good stuff. We do good stuff here. All right. Let's slide all the way, and we call this social gospel, we call this theological liberalism. Because what happens is, what is good, and I put that in quotation marks on purpose, what is good is really determined by what I think is good. So if I think it's good that that we uh, that we um, you know that we support homeless shelters, which is a good thing. I mean, biblically, that's a biblical. But I think it's good. So that determines how I read the Bible. That determines my doctrine. That determines what I think. If I think it's good that we demonstrate love to the exclusion of the biblical definition of marriage, you guys know where I'm going with that one. All right. Um, then I go ahead and reinterpret the Bible based on what I think is good. It's, this is good moral behavior. So I decide what's moral, and I'm way over here. Now on this side, you've got guys going, I'm right. On this side, we've got people going, I'm good. I'm right, I'm good, I'm right, I'm good. And what Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, he says, look, guys, it's a balancing act. He says, get back up on Realize that you've, you've lost this idea, this behavior of Christ. So don't overcompensate. Oh man, we were indoctrinal. Oh, we were so blind and all we did was academics. Let's get somebody who will make us feel warm and fuzzy and we will worship Him, we will follow Him. No. Get Jesus back up. Reload the Jesus behavior and find a balance between doctrine and this. Find a balance between belief and behavior and maintain it. Maintain it. He's not saying overcompensate, swing to one side, abandon doctrine, become social gospel. He's saying get back to the first love. Get back to who Jesus was. Get back to His behavior, His definition of love. Get back to that. Get it back up on that side of the balance and start to continue to hold the balance. Because you know what, as we go through life, and I know, I know, I can guarantee you have all experienced this unless you live inside a bubble, you always are having to shift one side or the other to keep it balanced. Sometimes you've got to shift to the love side because somebody needs a little extra love. They need, they need a little extra Jesus in their life. They don't need a lecture on doctrine. Well, you know, if you, you had a fully developed pneumatology, this wouldn't be a problem. All right? That's not what happens. All right? Sometimes people just need a little extra love. Sometimes people need a little extra truth. 
Sometimes people need cuddly people. I'm not a cuddly person. You guys have all heard this before. My view of counseling is, all right, what are you, what are you doing that's sin? Stop doing that. Come back and see me when you have. Um, this is, you know, sometimes people need the hammer. And sometimes people need the glove. Sometimes we need to do a little more doctrine. And sometimes we need to do a little more love. That rhymed, man. That's like a Bob Dylan song right there. Um, so, except it should have been... Um, but, uh, see, every once in a while I gotta throw a joke that you guys will get with the Bob Dylan thing. Um, the, the, you know, we have to find this balance. We've got to get this structure. And that's what he says to them. He says to them, if you don't repent, if you don't get that first love back on and get back in balance, what's going to happen is you're going to slide way over here and you're going to stop being the church of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to have to remove your lamp. See, Jesus isn't saying, you know, this is going to be your punishment. I'm going to remove your lampstand. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you're going to become not a church. You're going to become not a church. You're going to lose what makes you a church because if all you got is belief and you don't have any of Jesus' behavior, you've slid off the teeter-totter. You've lost the balance. He says, so get that love back up on. Get that love back up on. You know, that's, that's what gives us grace in our ministry. Um, you know, it's, it's what gives us balance. Because when you're, you're, you're all the way over here and all you're thinking about is being right, you got no grace. You don't speak the truth in love. You speak the truth, but it's callous and it's harsh and it's mean. It's, it's, it's like the essay test, you know. How many of you in college prayed that the professor would give you multiple choice? Please don't make it be an essay test. Please don't make it be an essay test. You know, and, uh, and then it's an essay test, and they got a grade on the curve because nobody can answer all the questions. Could be worse. I had a professor in college who gave us essay tests that involved alliterated lists. Explain in complete sentences the 14 S's presented by Dieter Zander in chapter 46. Stupid, senile. I failed that test. Um, you know, but but you got to get you got to get that balance in. You've got to find that balance. And you know what? We as the church, we've got to always be striking that balance. Sometimes we got to be doctrine heavy. Sometimes we got to be love heavy. We got to constantly be moving back and forth because we're holding on and we want to be the church. We don't want to be some irrelevant academy of theology. But we also don't want to be some mamby-pamby social club that just all it cares about is people's feelings. Well, how do you feel about that? doesn't matter how you feel about it. If it's in the Bible, it's in the Bible. Suck it up and live with it. You see, you see why I'm not a counselor, right? Um, we got to find that balance. we got to find that balance. Because if there's no Jesus behavior, why on earth would people listen to what we say about the Bible? If we're not identified with Christ, if we don't embrace that first love, they don't care what our doctrine says. 
And you know, the reality is that, that, that if I may be a little critical of my own tradition, my own, biblical, my own Christian tradition, is that my tradition has slowly, over the course of the 20th century, our tradition, the Baptist tradition, has slowly crept over to this kind of doctrinal side of things, and then we wonder why people go where they, they feel loved. Well, I know they're a little crazy, they do some funny stuff, you know, eh, you know um, they believe in other gods, but... They love us, right? They show love. I mean, isn't that the most important thing? Well, love without doctrinal basis is nothing. So you got to find that balance. You got to find that balance. And this is the warning he gives to Ephesus. He says, "You find that." I'd love to tell you, by the way, in verse uh, six, what the Nicolaitans were. We just don't know. We have no idea what they did. All we know is God did not like them. Jesus, in fact, he'll mention them twice more and we get some hints as to what they did. Um, but the reality is most of what we know about the, the Nicolaitans, this, they were some kind of heretical group, was, was said hundreds of years afterwards. We just really don't know what they were except they were wrong. So you could just go ahead and substitute the name of any wrong group in there and you'll be okay. But he says to them, he says, look, find this balance. Get in there. Get that first love back up. And let's talk about this now in practical terms. Because we as the church, right, if you don't know this, our formula is this. The congregation says that the church is composed of families. And the families are composed of men leading like God wants them to lead and women serving alongside their husbands and their children, well, they're a pot shoot, right? Um, but the most important thing is that mom and dad are in harmony, in mutual submission. Not the dad is the tyrant and the mom is just the slave, but rather that a man is the head of the church, uh, head of the house as Christ is the head of the church, which means that he lays down his life for her. He lays down his life for his wife. And his wife lays down her life for him. And they work together and they form a family. And families join together and that's what makes a church. Families joined together around Christ. Around proper doctrine and proper practice. And if you're not a part of a family that's all church, you're part of our family. Um, you know, you're, you, you're part of our, of our thing. But that's really the core of the church. And you know what Satan does to rip apart a church? He gets mom and dad to be out of balance between being right and being good. Oh, well, you know, your dad is the punisher. You've ever said this, by the way. You should really repent. Um, dad is the disciplinarian. Mom is the cuddly one. So, you wait till your father gets home. Can I be honest with you? If you don't know how to discipline your own kids, waiting for your dad to come home is not going to help. My mother could bring out the belt just as well as my dad could. In fact, you wanted my dad to punish you as opposed to my mom. All right? You wanted that to happen. Or the other one, you know, there are all these things. Kids playing mom and dad off of each other because they know your, your community psychology between you and your spouse. Your kids know that better than you do. They know how to play you and manipulate you. 
And my, my eight-year-old knows how to say just the right words to make it sound like she's not getting you to contradict your wife. She, she's, kids are devious, man. Their brains aren't full, full of information like how to drive cars and stuff, and they know how to drive mom and dad. Um, you know, and in the family, you know what? We've got to seek that balance together. We've got to jump up on that, that balancing board together and say, look, we know right doctrine. And we know the behavior of Jesus. How does that manifest with our kids? What's it look like with our kids? As elders, we have to do this as a church. Now, let me tell you something. It's a lot harder to balance the teeter-totter with five grown men on it than it, than it is by, by yourself. And that's why a lot of pastors go ahead and just say, I'm just going to make all the decisions. I don't need anybody's help. And I, I am incredibly grateful for the guys who have served with us, whether they're in the, the elder board now or not. I mean, guys like Doc DeLisi, who served with us at Heritage, um, you know, uh, uh, Ray Brown, Donald Bush. I know Sean, Sean was an elder along, along the way. I know that Lynn Swenson has been an elder along the way. And all these guys, at some time or another, have tried to get on the balance. And, and let me ask you guys, do we always get it right? Absolutely not. Do mom and dad always get it right? No, you're always going too far. Oh, God, God. You're always balancing. It's always a struggle. And it was a struggle for the church of Ephesus. It was a struggle for the families in the church of Ephesus. It was a struggle for the leaders of the church of Ephesus. It was a struggle for the church of Ephesus. And you know what? It's a struggle for the families at Bedford Road. It's a struggle for the leaders at Bedford Road. And it's a struggle for the church at Bedford Road. And you know what? Years down the road, when your kids are leaders in some other church somewhere else in the world, guess what? It's going to be a struggle for their families, and it's going to be a struggle for their leaders, and it's going to be a struggle for their congregation. This doesn't go away. This is the thing that you see. It is, and it is to come. It's always going to be a battle. And I bet if we took some time, I bet that every single one of you could tell a story about a church that slid one way or the other and stopped being the church. And you could tell a story about a family that slid one way or the other and stopped being a family. You know what? We as the church of Ephesus, we should mourn that and we should be aware of that. And we should say as a church, we are going to do our best to keep that balance. To keep that balance. To, to stay on that teeter-totter. To know when we need to shift. To keep our internal equilibrium and you know what? Sometimes we're going to be balancing it and we're going to start to fail and we're going to need somebody else to jump in. And we've got to be willing to say, I need somebody else to jump in. There's all kinds of practical stuff we could apply. And I could spend forever talking about that, but I think you guys get the idea. You get the principle. You get the concept. Now let me talk to the, the old people and the new people. And we'll close. Old people... I'm not talking chronological age, by the way. I'm talking those of you who have been here for a long time. They may coincide, I'm not saying. But the reality is, every once in a while, you just need to get one of those new people and say, buddy, you need to jump on and keep balance with me. And new people, God brought you here. If this is your church, if you have decided that this is your church, God brought you here because we needed the balance that you could bring. I'll tell you what, if you've been here for less than a year, you may or may not know that the people that were here when you got here have fought wars to keep that balance together. They have struggled and they have fought and some of them are tired and God brought you to jump in and be their place. 
I could thank tons of people for the things that they have done. But you all know. And if you don't know, get with somebody who's been here for a while because they got stories, buddy. But we're on that balance. Ephesus, by the way, is one of the ugly churches. Just so you know. They're less ugly than others. They're less ugly than... Would it be improper if I said they were less ugly than the CEO of Abercrombie & Fitch? You guys know what's going on with that particularly unpleasant-looking gentleman who who said that he doesn't carry certain sizes of clothes because he doesn't want fat people wearing them? Yeah. Good thing I can't fit Abercrombie and Fitch. (laughs) If they had like a junior Husky store, I'd be in there. I'm like, I got a pair of shorts. I wear them as pants. Um, which, by the way, this, this has nothing to do with the sermon. We'll close. But, but if you haven't met, we, we, uh, uh, there's a, another Eric that's been coming for a couple weeks. And to prove there is balance in the world, he's way taller than me. <laughs> so, so I think all the Erics in the world balance out. Ultimately, we all, there are the short, dumpy ones like me, and there are tall ones who play basketball, and there's balance. Anyway, that has nothing to do with the message. But you are here, God God has brought you here to keep that balance. And uh, you know what? Every church is a bit of an ugly church. And Ephesus was one. And uh, I'm kind of thankful for what God has done for us as a church and as we strike that balance. Let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Jesus, you do the most unorthodox and extraordinary things in scenarios that we think we should be able to control. You brought this motley crew of people together here, just like you did bring that motley crew of people together in Ephesus for your glory. And you encourage us and you reprove us. You instruct us and you correct us. Father, maybe in our homes, some homes here this morning, we've kind of lost our focus on that first love. Help us to put it back and maintain balance. And some of the folks here are tired from keeping the balance, Lord. We pray that you would bring others alongside them. Give us the strength and the confidence in your Holy Spirit to allow others to help us. Give us the strength and confidence in the Holy Spirit to be helps to others as we make this precarious balance. Lord, we are thankful for the Word, the Scriptures that teach us doctrine. We are also thankful for the behavior of Jesus and the way that He loved us and He saved us by giving His life for us. And Lord, we ask that we would continue to learn how to strike that balance today and moving on from today the things which are, and the things which are yet to come. We give you glory and honor this morning. In the name of Jesus, well, Jesus, in your name, we pray it. Amen.